0: so it's timely that we're having this conversation well for a couple of reasons one is i've been doing this podcast for i don't know seven years or something and one topic that i've always wanted to cover has been death and our as you put it our phobia around death and how it's such a ignored and dysfunctional part of our culture and i've kind of just been waiting on the right person to talk to i see and, uh, and when you couldn't find him <laughs> you got me. yeah exactly okay but interestingly enough I didn't realize it until we had booked this, but I heard you some years ago on my friend Daniel Vitalis' podcast. Oh, yeah. And it was really moving at the time. And then it just disappeared in the feed and I kind of forgot about it. And so right. when, when uh, Kimberly Ann Johnson alerted me to you being in town, mm-hmm. I realized that's the guy. He's the guy I wanted to talk to. Oh, good. Uh, so there's that. Yeah. And then uh, just last week, I have two half brothers and, um, and their mom just died. Last week and you know it was, we kind of knew it was coming and it was you know, a pretty intense process as it goes. and so uh, that's kind of on top of my mind as I've been in communication with them and doing my best to mm-hmm. uh, support them as someone who's never had a lot of direct experience with loved ones dying and uh, so here we are. Uh, in preparation for that, after we booked I started listening to your book Die Wise quickly downloaded it as i do in preparation for interviews and mm-hmm. found that it was 18 hours so i'm like two hours. sorry man. i'm like you should have two. asked yeah i'm
1: two hours i could have given you like, the give you the the tight version
0: yeah give me the cliff notes yeah. uh yeah so so here we are i guess my first question for you is you know thing that is always curious to me is what motivates someone to go into an area of work and i know you do a lot of different things now but you spent yeah. 20 years in palliative care you know what what do you think drew you to that as a
1: career for, for that long yeah it actually wasn't even that long it was maybe six.
0: Oh, okay i think Oh, okay
1: i just look old, older.
0: <laughs> that's like what you this spent is what it 20 did. years in the death field
1: well, the the notion of motivation credits me with a degree of sort of self-determination that wasn't really there, I should say. So I think if you're really lucky, life gets you out of the way of your life and then your life assumes uh, sort of operator status for a while. And if you're smart, no. If you know how to give up, then... You ride with that somehow. That's more or less what happened. So I wasn't, first of all, it helps not to be 25. You can't do that gig at 25 or 35 years old, I don't think. There's just not enough ballast. You know, you don't have enough gravel in the machinery. And you really need it. Because you could be capsized in that job so routinely and so mercilessly by the just the ordinary human suffering of a fellow human being kind of the implacable in mania for self-destruction that was manifest in that business as well. So uh, somebody knew me and just just pushed me in that direction. And I knew, I'm not an organizational guy and nothing to be proud of. I'm just not, you know. And, and I'm just not built to play in the sandbox well with others If if there's something egregious foot. Early on, I I knew again why I was, I'm not an organizational guy because I couldn't look the other way. Uh, I, the greater good wasn't being served by what I saw. So then um, there's one motivation to enter, but it's a different motivation to stay, much like marriage, you could say. And there's reasons you get married, but none of them survive being married. And being married is its own event, you know. It was very much like that, you're nodding like you know what I'm talking about, yeah, yeah, so uh, I learned how to be motivated to be there, but that was not there at the beginning, not at all. it was um, I didn't know there was such a thing as palliative care, really <laughs> uh, the notion that there's that the dying people can be severed off from humanity i'm I'm putting it very prejudicially now, but this is what I came to see. That um, dying people can be sequestered and that is quote, for their own good that they are. And I don't just mean institutionally, apropos of like old people, for example, but I mean their citizenship in the land of the living was in su- suspended animation and nobody seemed to be troubled by that. I was the only one who th- thought this is not only unnecessary and premature, this is malpractice. At the fundamental level, that's what it was. So now I'm motivated. You mm-hmm. see, now it begins to rise in me a sense of, I don't know, a kind of fundamental injustice that can't be defended by the particulars and the needs and the institutional limitations and things like that. So then I stayed. And then uh, very quickly, it worked that I I rose to the the top of the particular food chain that I was working in you couldn't go any higher and not be a medical person but I was in a circumstance where I was telling medical people how to practice not how to practice medicine unless you elaborate your understanding of medicine and not have it just be about metabolics but have it be a real whole person consideration which is what dying is it's not a metabolic event with unfortunate psychological add-ons That's the way it was dealt with. So it was principally in a medical environment, dying becomes medical. You know, with uh, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. That's what it was. And of course... Same could be said for birth, the way we treat birth. Oh, indeed, yeah. I mean, it's the reason that Kimberly and I work together. So we recognize a kinship in the afflictions of the work as well as the work. I had an increasingly unavoidable obligation based on what I saw to do what I could as long as I was there. And so I took a lot of chances. And taking chances in an institutional setting in a fundamentally conservative practice area like medicine is a time-limited arrangement. It just is. And I'm not blaming anybody for that. I put myself on a collision course with uh, the powers that be. I didn't really intend to, but I realized early on I think this is what's coming. So for a while, I was the beneficiary of benign administrative neglect. And it worked out exceedingly well for a brief but intense period of time. And I even conned myself into thinking this could last for a while. But doctors understandably won't take direction from non-medical people, given the kind of medical legal uh, liability arrangement that in North America I think generally pertains to the to the profession so I don't blame them actually for closing ranks against one somebody who's not their own because I wasn't really as exposed as they would have been to radically challenge their practice I wasn't exposed to the liability in the same way that they could easily have been so I hope that sounds as even-handed as I mean it to sound you know yeah still in all it's not it may be understandable but I don't know how forgivable it is. Where do you think,
0: as as a culture in the West, we diverted so dramatically in the ways in which we deal with death? From a historical perspective, looking at indigenous peoples, peoples that were more fully integrated into the human experience, into uh, nature, into our understanding of the cosmos, it seems that ancient peoples or peoples living closer to the land had, from my perspective, a healthier relationship with death. Where do you think this divergence happened when we started to create this phobia and um, compartmentalize death and treat it, as you said, as some sort of metabolic pathology rather than just a natural inherent part of life to be celebrated and fully experienced?
1: There's a few contenders for what happened, you know. I think if we're talking about Anglo-North America, which is the only regime I'm properly qualified to make any observation about at all, I think. But but our experience here in North America is hasn't gone on that long. And I think part of it can be traceable literally to coming here. Yeah. I mean, you know the rap. In your country here in the United States, you have a national mythology about why people came. And I, I mean that it's a mythology because it doesn't stand up to any scrutiny at all in terms <laughs> of how it actually went down back in the day. Never mind now. So nobody had any intention of getting back to the land in the sense that you mean it in your question. I mean, there are a lot of agrarian people, but they did everything they could to clamber to the top of the pile right from the get-go right? So how, if you're basically a a consequence of kind of institutional enslavement of some sort or other in the old country, how do you suppose you'll be and come to a new country and a fresh start? You're willing to start at the ground, do you think? Because these people were desperate to avoid what they ran from. But it's very difficult to have an agrarian society and not have a lot of workers who are menial in their tasks. So do you think the guys who ran from that stuff are going to line up for exactly the same gig in the New World? You know that's not what happened. So the best slave owners around were people who deke slavery. This is kind of a well-known historical reality, no? So there's that. A terrible misapprehension about what starting over could possibly look like. It turned out to be more of the same with you on top, if you could manage it. That was the dream, actually, the malignant dream. The other thing too is very, very practical. So we're coming over the Middle Passage, as it was often called, usually over the North Atlantic, and people are dying left and right on these ships, and getting a sea burial. And mostly they're the very young and the very old. So by the time the remnant you know, uh people washed up on shore here. first of all, you can imagine what they saw. You can imagine what condition they were in, and sort of um, generationally, they were bereft of the young and the old from among them. So you have a survivor mentality going in, and any culture that's been founded on the basis of survivorhood as a fundament of the thing tends not to do very well tends to be really hard on the place that it lands in. So we were elderless at our beginning.
0: Wow, that's interesting.
1: And and then over and above that the the vectors of culture that could have sustained some kind of land conscious tradition conscious um animist oriented a way of life all fell away. You see? And people lost much more than they found by coming. So, so you know, to credit that devastation, I came up with a, an epithet of sorts that goes something like this. Every morning on this continent, people who look like me wake up in the absence of what they lost by coming. It was mostly loss. Indigenous people wake up in the same place in the presence of what they lost by us coming. When you think about it easily at first contact, it sounds like the indigenous people got a much worse shake as a result of this history that we're talking about. But if you let that rendering, that parallelism that I just said in a little bit, you realize the devastation that has beset white folks on this continent, easily challenges the devastation that you apportion out to other groups, other circumstances. I know this, it doesn't go down well, but we would not be conducting ourselves as we are, apropos of dying, apropos of age, apropos of minorities, and on and on and on, if some of this stuff wasn't so. It's not just because, you know, white people are devils and what are you going to do? this thing I'm talking about is part of what constitutes the contemporary thing we could call white. This is partly where it comes from. It's not from here. It's from this kind of thing. This is inherited. This, we're inherited a kind of ghost culture. You know. So it's not surprising that dying turns as it, in, in, during the course of your lifetime and mine, has turned from a moral obligation into a lifestyle option. Another opportunity for you to express yourself. So is it shocking that dying has, has been seconded to the hallucinogenic program? Is it surprising? Not surprising to me in the least. It's absolutely in keeping with what I've been saying here in the last four or five minutes. But you probably have another question.
0: I'm going to take a moment here to share an incredible resource with you. It's called Quantum Upgrade. Every unit of matter contains quantum energy and so do our cells. Every person has a quantum energy field and constantly interacts with other quantum energy fields. Quantum energy is so important that the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics was specifically about quantum entanglement. Let me explain here how Quantum Upgrade uses this energy to powerfully enhance our well-being. Through many years of research, Quantum Upgrade has developed one of the world's most potent sources of usable quantum energy. When you sign up for their service, Quantum Upgrade associates your home, your phone, your business, your pet, or even your car with this energy source. And you all know by now what an EMF mitigation fanatic I am. That's because EMF frequencies are incoherent and dramatically stress the human body. Well, Quantum Upgrade counters this problem by harmonizing the EMF to make them no longer toxic to your body. This is why I love the service on my car. My EMF fatigue has dramatically improved. I mean, it very obviously works. But apart from the EMF benefits, Quantum Upgrade also enhances your vitality in many other ways, which are shown in the studies on their website. So if you want an affordable way to deal with EMF and experience the vitality you deserve, check out QuantumUpgrade.io and get a 15-day free trial using the code LUKE15. Again, that's QuantumUpgrade.io. I have many questions, yeah, but that that brings to mind uh, something I've observed. you know, I'm fifty two um, so I've been around a little while, maybe not quite as long as you have. Yeah. but it's very common that Americans that I know have a no real direct experience or at least long standing or impactful experience of the influence of their elders, of grandparents, great aunts and uncles, et cetera, right? The, The family unit. And not only that, many of us, I mean, this is true. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. No one on her family, for example, knows anything about their past, their relatives who came from where who right. landed where where right. they, you know right. it's like our family trees generally speaking and this is true in my case i mean i've had to really i've interviewed my parents like i'm interviewing you asking them about everything they know about our family lineage to try to get some understanding of where we are and to have something maybe to pass on yeah. um, you know when i have kids but we we do seem to have to your point a massive disconnection with those that came before us. It's like, we don't really have a culture. So it makes sense that we don't have this inherent and integral part of culture, which is how we approach death. So that's just like one kind of one nuance of the human experience that's largely missing or dysfunctional because we're kind of missing the whole thing in most cases. I mean, I think some people, you know, they have their Oh, yeah, you know, we we go back to Italy, visit the old country, we have family there. I mean, there are people that are connected to the places from which they came. But largely speaking, I I mean, I don't know, other than people like you to whom I speak on this podcast, I don't know a lot of elderly people that can kind of teach me uh, elements of wisdom that have been passed down about death or birth or what life means. I mean, you have to really seek it out. It's it's not just inherent in the family unit. Yeah, yeah, You're going to sit down with a grandpa and learn about the way of the world. You know,
1: you're describing a tragedy. You know, that takes the the form of poverty. I don't mean socioeconomic poverty. Now, I mean co- poverty of the kind that you've just described. But the thing, the whole thing is tragic. No. So let's come to the last thing you said first. A lot of people look like me who are a lot younger than I am, are very keen on the notion of, I'm going to use the word pillaging. Pillaging other ancestral traditions, not their own, for the sole purpose of reconstituting a sense of personhood and selfhood that's legitimate. And what's the cost of that legitimacy? To disconnect yourself, to throw everything that you came from under the bus in the name of coming from something more worthy of you than it actually is, okay? That's the tragedy. No, that's not the tragedy. That's certainly one of the elements of the tragedy you just described. So it's important, I think, to understand that elderhood is not a consequence of age. Elderhood is a cultural function. It's not a personal identity. People go in and out of elderhood in their last part of their lives according to the circumstances the needs the troubles of the times and their particular the particulars of their place that's what elderhood is there to serve when you elevate miss not the right word when you segregate the notion of elderhood from all of those contexts you get all this generic talk about elderhood now you know that like anybody older than you is fair game somehow somehow just Permanently on call, kind of like your, your <laughs> faceless ancestors. You know, they're just, that's what they're there for. You know, when it comes to you that you you could use a little top-up, then you hit them up. And the rest of the time, what are you doing to sustain them? To see to it that they'll be there in your time of need? And the answer is nothing. It's More tragedy, you see. The layers of tragedy on this matter are almost fathomless. There's so many, so many things that we've not given ourselves to when we could have done, when we're at sort of peak performance showroom condition um, earlier in our lives. So I grew up in a time, listen to this, it sounds like a geezer story now, but <laughs> the truth of the matter is I did grow up in a kind of a place where you, quote, respected your elders, unquote. And that was the term, people would use it from time to time, but not really as a piece of advocacy. They used it as a a descriptor. They were describing something that was ongoing and so, and wasn't debatable, didn't need to be debated, was in in its way manifest. What happened to that? In a relatively short period of time, who says respect your elders and means it? Who says it non-ironically? When was the last time you heard it said as a piece of advocacy? For the love of God, respect your elders. You get no takers for that, just as a blanket declaration of the fundament of a cultured person. That's what that is, but you'll never get takers for it. Why not? Well, I think one of the things that happened was that phrase was sequestered off from the rest of the phrase. The rest of the phrase went like this. Respect your elders as they conduct themselves respectably. That's the other half. That's the reciprocity. you know. So what we have now is a situation that can be summed up in a little vignette that occurred to me when I was right at the tail end of finishing the, the book that was normally about elderhood I wrote called "The Come of Age. I'm in Oaxaca, in the city of Oaxaca. I'm just finishing the book. I find myself in a bar, a very unusual circumstance for me, And there's a woman who's maybe 30 years old and she's that far away. And I haven't been in the game for a long time. Okay. So I don't even know how it works. I never knew then, but I certainly don't know how. (laughs) So she just looks at me and so I don't know what that means. So I just, I just nodded back to her. So she walks over and she says, so what do you do? And like, but she's not even looking at me. She's still scoping the joint, you know? So like an idiot, I think she's asking me a question that deserves an answer. So I answer her. I'm working on this book about, you know, writing things. In this case, I'm working on a book about elderhood. Elderhood, she said. Why? Just like that. I said, well, I think, I, again, I think she's asking me a question. It's clear she's not. In retrospect, I realized she wasn't. But I said, uh, I think something happened. On the way, on people's way to agedness that waylaid them in some fashion. I didn't get the whole sentence out. She just waved me off. She said, Oh, I know what happened. Elderhood, no, wisdom, she said. Wisdom abandoned people your age. And she had her finger like that. Abandoned people your age. We've got it now. That's the tombstone of elderhood, right there, in that little vignette. And yet you'd get an awful lot of self-avowed conscious people absolutely aligning with her take on where wisdom resides now. As older people have been disqualified in the in the sight lines of middle age and younger people, utterly disqualified for reasons we could get into in great detail, but the ecological ferment would be one. So we have very little credibility anybody my age, in the eyes of people of that age, you see. It's a big generalization, but it's bearing, it's bearing itself out.
0: All right, let's get honest here. Do you ever feel bloated and gassy after you eat? Well, it happens to the best of us, especially after a high-protein meal. Well, stay tuned, because I'm going to tell you how to tackle this problem on the cheap, folks. If you're like me, and you eat a lot of meat, fish, and eggs it could be crucial to supplement with enzymes that break down these proteins into amino acids that your body can actually use. It's like your body has a bank account of enzymes, and it really helps to make a healthy deposit into that account. Now, I know you probably love the products from Bioptimizers. We're all magnesium deficient, and Bioptimizers makes the best magnesium supplement on the market. But did you know that they also make a best-selling digestive enzyme product? It's called Masszymes, and it's a full-spectrum capsule of plant-based, naturally-derived enzymes that digest proteins, starches, sugars, fibers, and fats. I'm on these enzymes literally with every meal I eat at home, and even sometimes throw a few in my pocket when I'm eating out. Well, this month only, Bioptimizers is offering our listeners a free bottle to try it out. All you have to do is pay the nominal shipping fee. To score your free bottle, visit masszymes.com lukefree and enter the code LUKE10. Easy peasy. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S. Masszymes.com slash lukefree. And aside from crushing bloating, gas, and fatigue, Masszymes also help with nutrient absorption and muscle mass. So don't miss out on your free supply this month only. That's masszymes.com slash Luke free and punch in code Luke 10 to get your free bottle today. And how does this relate to the phenomenon of, okay, so if we don't, if we don't value elderhood And perhaps, as you said, some of the elders maybe aren't deserving of that value because they don't bring a lot of wisdom to the table or they've kind of wasted their lives in futile pursuits and
1: haven't... Or terrible compromises.
0: Yeah, Yeah. or haven't integrated what they've learned or have uh, a means by which to express it. But it seems there's a direct correlation there between how when people tend to age and their health declines as it does. I mean, in, in many cases... Very unnaturally and rapidly now, because mm-hmm. of the way we live, mm-hmm. uh, sequestered into assisted living, mm-hmm. and then the diseases get worse, and then it's hospice, and it's just like I see just a, such a sad demise mm-hmm. of of older people. Yeah, and and we we seem to have um, a word that you've used a bit, this phobia around just being present to that decline, like the idea of a Westerner taking their ill parent into their home and caring for them throughout the end of their life. I mean, I think it's exceedingly uncommon and seems like a, even as I say it, a crazy idea. And I love both of my parents, but it's, it's not even, I mean, I don't know if I would do that. I I hope that I'm a good enough person to do that if the Mm -hmm. time came, but it's not really what happens. I think we just, we have this, inability to face discomfort and to face grief head on and it seems as people start to age and begin the dying process we're so terrified and paranoid of feeling anything other than numb or comfortable or happy that we just push it out of our sight and we we don't want to have a tangible relationship with it
1: well what do you suppose the industry of self-improvement is for How can this be any other result of that enterprise than exactly what you've just described? Who gets into the self-improvement game in order to be moderately content? Or to be normally unhappy? Or to contend, but not that um, heroically, with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? I ask you, who goes into the self-improvement game To obey the limits of life. There. Yeah, true. That's it. Right. It's personal growth. Think about what the word (laughs) growth actually means. Okay. Okay? It it should not shock you for a second that in oncology land, where I used to work, the word growth is a synonym for tumor. Not success. Tumor. You you know that. I know I'm not shocking Mm -hmm. you here. But if you think about the uh, association, growth for its own sake, whether it's sociopolitical growth or personal growth, I think is utterly besides the point. Growth for its own sake, untethered to its consequences, is sociopathic, not life-affirming. Sociopathic. So, is there an antidote? I don't know about an antidote. Is there a treatment regime? Yeah, there is. What is it? Limits, frailties, endings. You want to get educated? That's where you go. You don't go somewhere so you can defy them. They just scraped the remains of five people off the bottom of the ocean. Not two weeks ago, right? For what? For doing what? For trying to extend the limits of what's possible, being exceedingly rich and being able to do so at the same time, of course. And uh, the, well, they saw the rich guys sear across the heavens. So let's go to the Titanic. Is there any moral to be derived from this sad, utterly unnecessary, epically wasteful circumstance? The answer is, like on my farm, there's places you don't belong there. And they don't belong to you either. There. Translate that. Translate limitation And stop making it an affront to your self-direction. Understand, your limits are granted to you, not inflicted upon you. Your limits are entrusted to you, the same way this body was. You know, when it's time to turn it in, those limits should be there. Not flaunted and thwarted and demeaned and diminished and sworn off of. So it's no surprise that in a competence-addicted culture, when your time comes, <laughs> when the wind down is manifest, you're full of what? Acceptance? No, you're full of defeat. That all your best regimes, all your best self-improvements cashed out into what? A kind of twitchy, impossible-to-govern, uh, little sequence of undoings which are somehow beneath you and degrading to you. You see all of this as a middle-aged person, as a young person, what do you think? You practice how you are, how you're gonna be with your um, ancestors, with how you are with your old people. Now your old people will become a tangible manifest example of whatever you do, don't turn into that. So is it a surprise then that my country, for example, legalized euthanasia. They don't call it that. But that's what it was before they changed the, the name and made it more user-friendly. Now they call it "made Medical Assistance in Dying. Who doesn't want a MAID? <laughs> Do you think it's an
0: accident they called it that? Yeah, there are no accidents. Not many. Especially when it comes to marketing. Not many. What's so, your What's your take on, on that policy? The MAID
1: thing. Yeah. You can guess but I won't make you guess. The gist of it would be this to me. Canada was a death phobic culture before this experiment was made, was entered into. A death phobic culture legalized euthanasia. What does that tell you about legalizing euthanasia? What it tells me is you can legalize euthanasia and keep your death phobia intact. And that's what we did. People's orientation to the realities of dying haven't improved at some fundamental mythic level in, the, in this eight, seven years, I think it is, or eight, something like that. People, we're, not, we're not better death people as a consequence of this option. Not at all. Our fear of death, if anything, has gone further underground while we imagine ourselves to be well served by this option there at the end of life. Where does the option come from? Is there such a thing as real, intractable, indefensible human suffering? Of course there is. I've seen it. I know what it looks like. Is this what I'm talking about? No. I'm talking about the vast majority of circumstances that never get that far. That will never get there. Where made is available to them too. The sad circumstance that I've seen over and over again is that our fear of death is augmented by our ability to duck it one more time in one other way that's now legalized it's a kind of it's a kind of grief bypass it seems to me you know that you don't have to die literally that's what it means you don't have to die because you can get killed right, right. fighting words I know they are right right but look I'm not making this up. In the English language that you and I are speaking right now, we have this verb to die. I ask you now to use the verb to die in the passive voice in a sentence. Because you know the culture actually understands dying as something that happens to you. Comes somehow from the outside or from terribly inside to undo you. That's basically the take, no? So try to use the verb and the passive voice to corroborate this understanding of dying. And you won't be able to do it. Why not? Because in the English language, the verb to die is by definition an active verb. There's no passive voice for it. You can't use the verb to die as something that happens to you. The only way you can say it is it's something you do. The language is trying to help you out on the matter, trying to clarify your thinking. You see. So the only way you can get the passive voice back into the understanding, you got to change the verb. You either die, that's what you do, or you're killed. That's what happens to you. And that's why I used the word just now. Wow. Mm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. Sadly. In the thread that you were kind of unraveling around personal growth and personal development, I can can see your point on that. Um, In my relationship to that process, which was born out of being an addict uh, for a long time earlier in life. And um, thankfully, by the grace of God, literally getting sober when I was 26, uh, the name of the game for me has been, if you could use one principle, I would say surrender. Um, And developing a relationship with God, you know, just to put it plainly. And it seems to me that... (laughs) The more I allow myself to die, and I don't know if I can articulate this, but maybe you can help me unpack Mm -hmm. it. I have an awareness that there are parts of me that are dying off all the time. And there are the parts of me that I find that I'm clinging to, my expectations, my attachments, my needing to be here, my needing to stay young, my avoidance of death, right? It's kind of like that. um, I don't know if it's Greek or where it is derived from, but if you die before you die, when you die, you don't die. I don't know if you've heard that before.
1: Not quite like that, but I follow the logic.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'll find myself, for example, driving around in my car and just go, wow, this is impermanent.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, this moment right here is fleeting. And I find what is the growth, maybe spiritual growth or understanding or enfoldment is rather than uh, avoiding that reality in that moment, but to fully surrender myself into it, to allow myself to feel the grief Uh, a more profound example would be and allison reminded me of this last night there have been many times since uh we've been together where we'll be having a moment and i just it's one of those moments of beauty that's just simple you're taking a walk you're taking a drive you're laying in bed and i'll look at her and feel this depth of love Mm -hmm. and at the same time there's a heartbreak that's present.
1: Yeah. Because they belong together.
0: Because of the impermanence, right? Yeah. And and so as I feel it now, that's how I'll feel it. It's a great example of what's happening in my body right now. And it's like, I see there's kind of two options. One is just stuff this down and just stay in the love, Right. <laughs> And the other part is to just fully express and feel and just go, wow, yeah, this this really is impermanent. And to just savor, it's almost like a foreshadowing or a forefeeling of the grief that is sure to come at some point, because in our forms here, there's going to be a separation at some point. Right? Yeah. Do you I don't think-, think that's in the future.
1: Okay. That's in the present. Okay. That grief you're describing, mm-hmm. you can call it anticipatory if you want to but when when is this happening now now exactly right. so the grief about what is to be is here now it doesn't need it to be to happen you're alert enough as to the transience of the whole deal to have the alertness inform you now on your best days if i may be so bold yeah. <laughs> and in the rest of your days you're a, you're a lunkhead like the rest of us yeah right yeah. with no clue whatsoever because somebody cut you off on the road, whatever it is, sure. And all the little things. So, so speaking of transience, your alertness as to the reality of transience is itself transient and fitful, right? So how do you submit to that? That's a hard road now to realize that your victory moments are... And then you're back in the grind and you don't know where the victory went and you realize... It's not a victory, you idiot. This doesn't mean you win. Right? That's not what submission is. It's not you secretly win and you're secretly prevailing now that you get it. You get it very fitfully. All you need is one human being to intrude into your wisdom, to undo the whole thing. I'm saying this kind of jokingly. No. One human being (laughs) infiltrates your certainties and the whole thing's for naught. Again, and if you happen to like them, oh, you're in desperate straits now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. Right. Okay, so ultimately, this is a decent response, is to laugh at this the sheer unworkability of our plan, of our scheme, of our self-improvement. It doesn't really belong. What belongs, like I said earlier, is the limitations that we're entrusted to you if you just elaborate that beyond the sense of personal satisfaction and think about unsustainable ways of life that the West is clearly addicted to and has no intention of surrendering voluntarily, you realize, man, a taste of limit that wasn't skewed in the direction of punishment would be an amazing thing. This is why I can't get get close to all the the kind of... um, ecological podcast stuff where they love the fact that nature's going to eventually rise up and smite us. They just love that stuff. <laughs> you know? And whose idea of justice is that? Okay, it's not It's not the world's idea of justice. I mean, the naturally occurring world is not invested in annihilating humanity. It doesn't seem to be so to me. That is our solution to ourselves, not the world's solution to us. Right? We're the only one who came up with misanthropy as a legitimate alternative to us being here.
0: Most of us that are into health now realize that it's really important that we watch what we're eating and we're drinking, right? But I think a lot of people still don't realize how important it is to be mindful about the things you put on your body, not just in your body. So I'm talking about the lotions, the skincare products, personal care products, etc., That stuff goes right into the pores of your skin and it doesn't have the opportunity to go through your liver and your detox organs to get removed. It goes into your bloodstream. Little random secret here. This is why Jimi Hendrix is said to have put LSD in his headband at Woodstock because it goes right in your skin and he trip balls. Anyway, I digress. My friend Andy, who's been on the show a couple of times, you can go back and listen to episode 18, created this company a few years ago called Alatura Naturals and Andy... I mean, if I could ever met anyone that's on my level of obsession with quality, he might even have me beat. He is completely obsessed with sourcing the best ingredients. You could literally eat his products. I mean, I I don't know if you would want to eat some lotion or a clay mask, but you could and it wouldn't hurt you. Because um, here's the deal. Your skin actually does eat anything that you put on it. That's what I really want you guys to understand. So his ingredient decks are just nuts. Uh, My personal favorites are the night cream. I mean, I ration that stuff out like just a tiny little bit every night because I'm so afraid I'm going to run out of it. It's so awesome. The clay mask is face lotion. This is what I use for anti-aging, brighten complexion, detoxification of my skin, removal of blemishes, hydrating the skin like crazy, and making it possible for me to be a beast with sun exposure. I don't know. I think for Creeping on 50, my skin looks pretty good. And um, it's definitely largely due to Alatura Naturals products, which you can find at alaturanaturals.com. If you use the code LIFESTYLIST, you're going to save yourself 20% and get free shipping in the U.S. That's alaturanaturals.com and the code is LIFESTYLIST. Driven by some um, unsolvable level of guilt, too. Right? Yeah,
1: guilt, yeah, which has nothing to do with conscience, nothing to do with awareness at all. Guilt is what you do to bypass being aware and being fundamentally responsive to that awareness. I'm not saying that there's not moments, clearly there are moments for it. That's not even personal guilt. That's a, a guilt at a national level, for example, for you know insane wrongdoings and bad policies and all the rest. But guilt never seems to me to have ever produced a conscious human being, a, a twitchy, self-harming human being Yes, surely, a human being who doesn't trust the, the the body politic. Yes, but not a not something that you'd long after. That's not guilt's work. Guilt's work is um, guilt is an identity. It's not work. It's an identity. It, take um, you know someone released from prison, so they've paid their debt to society, so called, so they don't owe society thing anything further from the terrible misadventure that got them there in the first place. Okay, but they're still guilty, aren't they? Aren't they? They still did the thing they did, didn't they? Correct. That's identity stuff talking. You'll never not be guilty. That's the straitjacket of guilt. As a moral compass, it's a disaster. But the notion of fundamental sorrow and regret is absolutely weapons grade alertness. It really is. Weapons grade, I'm referring using that to refer to the capacity to undertake some kind of revision of the understanding that if until you're guilty, you don't get it. It's weapons grade in that
0: context, is what I mean. And you said it, of course, it's fleeting our awareness and acceptance of our own mortality, of the impermanence of love, of uh, of precious moments. Do you think that that's a healthy practice, as fleeting as it might be? And I I ask because I find that the looser are my attachments to the way things are, the easier time I seem to have. When I think about my own mortality, the more I can have a working relationship with it now, seems to make it less scary yeah or just thinking about my parents passing or any sort of loss or grief it's like it seems if i am able to cultivate my ability to experience grief and do my best to not run from it and numb it out that it actually takes the power out of it in a way out of what out of the 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 fear of having the Uh. feelings right it's like I think so many of us, and I'll speak for myself for sure. You know, I spent so much of my life, and I'm sure I still do in numerous ways, but speaking of addiction, um, you know, my entire life was around the avoidance of feeling anything, especially something like grief or loss, which I had no capacity to handle. Right. So it, it seems the more I can just face the difficulties of life and the challenges head on they sort of lose their power, they lose their potency. It's like a feeling comes up like it did a few moments ago talking <laughs> yeah. to you. Yeah. There would have been a time I would have been terrified to feel yeah. any of that. Now it's just it's a little wave that passes through and then you just keep it moving. Yeah.
1: Temporarily <laughs> You gotta put that at the end of the sentence, no? Temporarily. Uh, yeah. Otherwise you say, oh I got I I got the new skin. Right. This is the this is what I go dancing in. To use Peter right. Gabriel's lyric there yeah you look your victors are temporary your realizations are temporary no if I were to ever to recommend any anything to anybody that I think constitutes a pretty good practice that really doesn't have much downside it would be this I saw the people who had the hardest time dying were the bloated people I don't mean now physically I'd mean the sense of all the accretions they managed during the course of their lives they maintained to the extent that they were able with the oncomingness of symptoms and all of that downturn stuff. They, they maintained everything they could of their former life. Their former sense of themselves and so on. They died the hardest. Almost across the board. So let's use the example of your stuff. You got a fine guitar collection I noticed. We could talk about it later maybe. <laughs> I envy, envy it, of course. But I'm saying, if you have a lot of stuff, you're coming towards the end of your life, you're, going, you're just going to have a hard time. Why? Because that stuff is attached to you in some fashion. That's why you still have it. Come on now. Okay? One of the greatest practices is to watch your stuff walk out the door in somebody else's hands. <laughs> it just is. Yeah, And that's good practice for everything we're talking about now. And yeah. here's the thing. I'm not saying it's necessarily good. For you. Maybe I'm talking about the guy who's walking out the door with one of your guitars. Yeah. Okay, so the extent to which the good stuff circulates is the extent to which we don't do too badly. I don't mean just in terms of personal, sorry, I keep touching that microphone, uh, survival. I don't mean survival. I mean that the world is in some incremental way slightly better off as a consequence of our departure from it than it was when we are clinging to it. That's what I mean. That is doable. You don't need a massive revolution in consciousness. You don't need 40,000 people to go along with you. You don't need a movement on the internet to do what I'm talking about. You just need to find a way to say goodbye to your stuff while you still can. So when do you start? Now, there's nothing to wait for vis-a-vis dying.
0: You're right. When I'm 80, I'll start to thin yeah. <laughs> out the hurt. Yeah, sure. sure I and
1: when, when I can't play anymore, then I'll start yeah. that kind of and thing. And when you say stuff, uh, yeah. uh,
0: I'm assuming that that would also be um, the constructs of who you think you are. Well, of course, world, right? because
1: you're not going to let go of your stuff stuff Yeah. if you, if that other half is not happening. Yeah. Or if you do, God bless you. Because... Against all of your inclinations, you're just, you're just parting with something and you hate doing so. You know, it's a Scrooge moment, right? Do you remember the famous Dickens story? Ed, yeah. That thing about he's learning what it means to give, which he never knew about because he was busy calculating what he had and trying not to lose it, right? Those people don't die well. And that's what that Christmas carol story is about. Clearly, it's not about Christmas. It's about generosity generosity of spirit is not a good replacement for generosity with your stuff. If you're going to choose between the two, be generous with your stuff and don't worry about your spirit too much, I would say. But of course, these things go together. You part with stuff against your own inclinations, your spirit bitching and griping will follow. But if you wait for your spirit to get it all figured out first, your stuff is going to coagulate in the basement till the cows come home. So better to act and then have your feelings catch up.
0: If you're listening and you want to cut down on the microbes, fungus, and mold in your body, but you don't want to mess with the uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, it might be time to try a natural solution that's been used for centuries, colloidal silver. Not only that, but the patented silver sole technology from SilverBiotics doesn't harm the beneficial bacteria while doing its job in the body. Unfortunately, other brands can harm probiotics with as little as three parts per million. And SilverBiotics has tons of ways for you to get the benefits of colloidal silver that are safe, non-toxic, and have no known side effects. They've got creams for healthy skin and even a new anti-aging facial serum, plus silver-infused drops, sprays, and lozenges to boost your immune system, and oral care products like whitening toothpaste and gel, of which I am a huge fan. In fact, I always pack the lozenges and the spray in my bag when I'm doing some air travel. And one of my favorites is their First Aid Armor Gel to take care of cuts and burns. It's even good on sunburns and bug bites, which I found to be very useful here in Texas. So head over to silverbiotics.com to check out their whole range of products and use the code Luke to save a massive 30% off your entire order. And heads up, if you've got pets, make sure to check out that product too. I give it to our dog Cookie on the reg and it's pretty damn amazing. Again, visit silverbiotics.com and use the code Luke at checkout. Many people face death as a result of illness. And uh, because we like to avoid pain and there's an entire industry there set up for long life and for the avoidance of pain, I'm assuming in your experience that many people were heavily medicated at the time of death and, and sort of losing whatever sense of presence they had i mean i know what it's like to be on painkillers for example and you're kind of not all there and so i have a curiosity around you know end of life comfort mm. as a value mm. versus end of life presence mm-hmm. And I feel, sitting here as a healthy 52-year-old guy, that, oh, I'm going to go for the presents, but right. you put me in the hospice bed. Yeah, boy. Am I going to want the dilated IV mm-hmm. because it's so uncomfortable? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yes, and maybe the, the reason the dilated is so compelling doesn't have much to do with physical symptoms after all. has to do with your, your deep uneasiness, with the notion of all the unspectaculars. Of what you, the time you're talking about now, like not being able to be in the bathroom by yourself, as a classic. You know, when people talk about dignity, they talk about when life's no longer being worth living. You know what they're talking about much more often than not, whether they can be in the bathroom by themselves. That's where the dignity apparently lives. You see, so I'm not saying it's superfluous. I'm not, but I'm saying that we might want to relocate our sense of dignity. So it's more in keeping with these limits that we're talking about and less infatuated with um, supremacy, uh, uh, mastery, and competence. Mastery and competence, not your best friend when you're dying.
0: Have you ever heard the story about Aldous Huxley's death? Remind me. He was an early adopter of LSD as a therapeutic for the hippie culture and it became a recreational or consciousness expanding drug etc. Yeah. And uh on his deathbed he requested that his wife give him 100 micrograms of acid and he checked out in an LSD journey and from her account had a beautiful experience. <laughs> you know, and I think about that as to me that sounds just absolutely terrifying <laughs> but
1: Mm-hmm.
0: From a certain perspective one mm. could see that I mean if 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 you're anything when you're in an LSD experience, um, you're present to a different level of reality, an interdimensional sort of reality. Um, and I know because I've had so many experiences where my reality went really dark I mean I'm going way back in years but still there was something more tangible in those experiences than just your normal waking state. Right. And, um, to me, that story stood out because it's such a different account of how most people die and her experience of him just being in a complete surrender and joy and love and just being there for it in a profound way. It's kind Mm -hmm. of the antithesis of running away from the experience. I think, um, to me, that seems like the opposite of taking a bunch of opiates and just kind of checking out because the whole thing emotionally and physically is just too demanding and terrifying and painful.
1: You think the motivation is different between the two options? Well, well maybe the motivation
0: is the same. It's just a different mechanism of action to get you there, right?
1: You know, I don't know. It's not yeah. my my thing. Yeah. I don't know about it. It wasn't yeah. as oncoming as it is now when I was working the trade. But I could make this observation, I think, it could be helpful regarding what you're saying. People tend to die in the manner of their living. We count on the notion that there's certain peak experiences in life. that are going to deliver you from you long enough to give you a cho- like a, a, an unabated choice. And you're going to exercise the choice wisely. That's the assumption. But I didn't see that. I have to tell you, I didn't see everybody on the planet die in a given year, obviously not. And I don't know that thousands makes what I'm saying more true or less true. But for what it's worth, just to consider, if you, begin, if you die in the manner of your living, then the spectacular delivery system that you're imagining where you can finally leave yourself behind is the final victory of this self you're trying to leave behind a very hollow victory indeed, you know, to cease. Anyway, I can't pretend that there's a solution sitting there for all of these death terrors that's invariable and is going to work for everybody and should work and should be available and nobody should have to die suffering. And I just can't. I can't collude with the notion that suffering somehow doesn't belong. I I can't. So I don't set myself the task of obliterating human suffering. There's an element of suffering. I don't know if I'm talking about degree here or kind or I don't know. But suffering belongs near as I can tell. And in the same way that things that hurt you belong. The fact that they hurt you doesn't disqualify them. Right? The thing... The fact that there's stuff you shouldn't eat, doesn't mean it shouldn't be in the world, hmm. right? But they they belong. Your hurt belongs.
0: Sometimes our hurt is our biggest gift. I mean, some of the hurts I've experienced in my life have, in hindsight, benefited me more than
1: when things were going well yeah. and easily. <laughs> yeah, I mean? I understand, but you can tell I'm veering away from the hero stories, the Huxley kind of stories, and yeah. I just do. Yeah, I, Just congenitally, I do. Why? Because I saw, look, at any given time, let's just pull a number out of the sky. 400 people are dying, right? Everybody knows the story of the one of the 400 people that didn't die on schedule, didn't die as expected, didn't die badly, and so on. Everybody knows one of those stories. It defies the odds, pulled it off, heroic and all the rest. Nobody tells the stories of the 399. I do. Why? I'm not saying they cancel out the one. But I'm not saying that the one cancels out the 399 either. So my thing is this. Let somebody tell the story of the heroic one person who defied the odds of death. I'll tell the story of the 399 people who died on schedule in a way that was so predictable given how they lived. And we get all the 400 stories told. That I can live with. But the notion that we got to eliminate the 399 so they can all become the one is a monstrous, monstrous, ghostly proposition that is indefensible and frankly cruel and intolerant, near as I can tell. I mean, where's the room for frailty and failure if you keep telling hero stories? see, but futility and failure and fear and these things belong, man, how you are with them, not how you are without them, is the story to me.
0: So if how you die is how you live, then Mm -hmm. it seems we'd be
1: best served to really focus on living well. Well, but not to the exclusion of what we're talking about, Uh because as you so properly said and teared up when you said it, how do you come to alertness about this matter? When your life's going good, nobody ever came to me and said, everything's going great. I thought it was time to talk about dying. Never happens. Never going to happen. There's something about things going well that just it's, gets you off the scent of the big things. I'm not saying you should seek out destruction and destitution. I'm just saying, just let's just be alert that when things are going well, that'll do. You're not that much of a seeker when things are going well. Right? Okay, in fairness to us all. So there's something about things going off the rails that turns into something that could be exceedingly useful. As long as you don't try to convert it into another secret victory game. If you don't, you let your defeats defeat you. Then you realize along with, I think it was Rilke who made this observation, we're not here to prevail. We're here to be defeated by greater and greater things. In other words, you up your game on the manner by which you can be undone. And that's your nobility. Not how you resist being undone. The quality of what undid you is something to brag about. Amen. Amen.
0: Who have been three teachers or teachings that have most profoundly impacted your work? Lord.
1: Well, I love Seamus Haney's work as a as a working, politically alert poet in, in a hard time in Ireland. And he had something to say to a lot of us who have nothing to do with being Irish. One, Seamus Haney. The other guy I'm thinking of eclipses all the other thoughts I could think. So I went to Harvard Divinity School. I wanted to go into priesthood of something or other. That's literally as close as I got. They discovered in the act of of vetting me that I'd never been to church, which I didn't think was an obstacle. They clearly did. So that's a true story. So I didn't get in. I got into the school, but I got waylaid into the academic program, no white collar program for this guy. This worked out, I would say. But still, I was defeated, man. In the same week, I met an old black man who's a self-identified as a storyteller. That's what he was. That's what he did. I thought storytelling was a ghetto for kids entertainers. I didn't know have any idea what it meant and I I didn't hold it in any kind of regard at all. But he saw me in a crowd and he said you should come to my class. I said I just got disqualified for the whole program. He said you should come to my class. I'm thinking, wait this is Harvard. You can't mess around with which class you go to. I agreed to come just to check it out just to get him off my case basically. This man Well, I apprenticed with him for about seven years. Really? That's how it started, though. Wow. Yeah. In a week of defeat, he said, you'll do. And I was his band, basically. Uh, I accompanied him all kinds of tours. And, you know, I could tell you the running away to the circus stories with him. But the one that answers your question better is, this is a guy who is so incandescent and so capable as a human being, that his example was relentless, anarchic, and tyrannous. He was not an easy guy to be around because he was so utterly human, and unapologetically so. I don't mean flawed when I say it, although certainly that's true. I mean, he was a master, finally, of tragedy. Funny as he was, but he was a master of tragedy. As a practitioner, as an understander, and as an advocate. Most of his stories came from there. You know, the whole Shakespearean canon by heart, all the parts by heart, man. And he could do it in iambic pentameter, the whole thing. Then he did exactly the same stuff in black idiomatic slang. I mean, he was unbelievable. He was rapping before there was such a word, before (laughs) anybody talked about it. And I was in on the ground floor of seeing somebody do it. So what happens? Well... He steals from me. What do you mean? I mean, I met him as a 21-year-old, 20 maybe, and I was slouching at the threshold of adulthood the way so many North Americans do and saying, you know, don't ask me or whatever my attitude at the time was. No instruction whatsoever. Simply by his vivid and livid example, he took that from me. Why? Because I saw the real thing. And I was defeated in principle in my self-absorption by seeing the real thing. I was 10 years in the desert as a consequence of meeting him. 10 years when our arrangement sort of dissolved because of visa and, and nationality things and all that. And necessity. Because it was enough, as it turned out. But man, 10 years in the desert wherein I got married and had kids and tried to you know, straighten up and fly right and all that sort of thing. 10 years in the desert trying to live out the gap between what I'd seen in being with him and all the realities of life that were seen to be available to me, none of which could begin to approximate what I'd seen. I didn't know how to live what I saw. That's what I'm saying. And without that, I'm not sitting here. You'd never be interested in anything I came up with. That's where it comes from. It comes from being defeated by a master practitioner of eloquence. Defeat will get you there a lot faster than victory will. You got a third one? He's two. That's three altogether. (laughs) (laughs) Him and Shane Saney is three people. Hey, Cookie. His name was Dr. Hugh Morgan Hill. Save a great reverence, but he was not known that way by anybody really who had ever heard of him in the public domain, because he had what he called a street name that he performed with. Not a different persona; he was that guy all the time, relentlessly, implacably that guy. But his street name is Brother Blue, and that's how you can find him if you. Oh, cool. Yeah, I don't look at the stuff because my vi- my memories are too vivid. And I can't survive exposure to a YouTube. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, hello. Do I deserve this? Is that it? You know I'm allergic, don't you? Are you really? Yeah, but don't worry about it. We because he's got her plans. Off. He's got plans. I got two dogs at home, but they're outdoor dogs only. Oh, yeah.
0: For those listening, Cookie just dive-bombed uh, Stephen. That's right. Uh, we're going to put all of your work and the people that you just mentioned in the show notes at LukeStory.com slash Stephen. forgot to mention that earlier in the conversation. Man, thank you so much. Thank you too. For, uh, for coming by. Yeah, a Pleasure thank to cool. meet you and uh, I look forward to chatting with you again. I feel like I could ask you questions for quite a while. We're not done. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. But I appreciate it. I know you guys are on tour and in between dates and I'm so grateful we were able we'll to sit down in person and share some space and, and have a tea.
1: Me too.